you are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see. You are about to see. That belongs in a museum. You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. That belongs in a museum. Welcome to another exciting episode of Treasury Cast, the show that celebrates the greatest comics format of all time, the Treasury Edition. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, and I'm your host, Rob Kelly. And this is a very, very special episode. I think I say that every episode, but this one I really, really mean it. And that this is our Wonder Woman special. This is going to be an episode devoted entirely to DC's amazing Amazon. And I have lined up not one, not two, but three amazing gets to talk about two different Wonder Woman treasuries. First up is going to be Diablo Frank from the Diana Prince Wonder Woman podcast and various other shows across our network, talking about famous first edition Sensation Comics number one. And then next up, we're going to have Angela from the Wonder Woman Warrior for Peace podcast to talk about all-new collector's edition Superman versus Wonder Woman by Jerry Conway and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. And then finally, we're going to wrap up the episode with Jerry Conway himself. The comics legend Jerry Conway is going to be here, and I'm going to get to talk to him about writing the Superman versus Wonder Woman treasury. So this is all very, very exciting. I wanted to do something big and special for Wonder Woman because the movie is out. It's super cool. We've been waiting forever for Wonder Woman to get a movie, and she's finally got one. So this is going to be a Wonder Woman-centric episode of Treasury Cast. So stay tuned. We're going to play some podcast promos, and we will be right back with Diablo Frank. It was 1941, and a war was raging in Europe. Superheroes were on the rise in the comic book medium, but one of them was about to hit the page that would change the world of comics forever. <laughs> Ambassador goddess, warrior, hero. This summer, join me, J. David Weeder, as I explore the comic book tales of the amazing Amazon from the Golden Age and beyond as the Dave Cave presents the sensational adventures of Wonder Woman. You can find the show on iTunes and at wonderwoman.thedavecavepodcast.com. Hi, I'm Diana Prince, the administrative assistant. Can I help you? I'm Jan Brady. I'm doing a school project on Euclid, the famous Greek mathematician. Well, perhaps I can help you, Jan. Gosh, that's very nice of you, Miss Prince. I... We interrupt this program to tell you that the Coast Guard reports that a small craft is floundering in heavy seas five miles off the coast. We repeat. Um, pardon me, Jan. I just thought of something I have to do. But, gee, she said she was going to help me. I guess I might as well go watch Marsha until Miss Prince comes back. I wonder what it was Miss Prince had to do. is a job for Wonder Woman. And we're back, and to talk about famous first edition C30, Sensation Comics number one, is our pal, Diablo Frank. Hello, Frank. Good to be here. How's it going? Uh, very good. I'm very happy to have you here, despite your outspoken criticism of the Treasury format. Yes, well, I have to make an exception. I actually do own this one. I do own a few Treasuries. I'm, I'm not ever going to be the proponent that you are, but... This format does have value. 
Oh, well, thank oh, well, you very thank much. You very much. Appreciate, appreciate that. Appreciate so, that. So, okay, uh, like I said, we are here to talk about Sensation Comics number one as reprinted in Famous First Edition number C30, which was released on May 7th, 1974. And, you know, I, I talk about on the show before that, that Wonder Woman really kind of got royally screwed when it came to Treasury editions. Superman, Batman, Rudolph, Shazam, they all got multiple Treasury editions. Wonder Woman never got one all to herself. Except when it comes to the famous first editions, Wonder Woman got two of them, uh, two of them all to her own, which is actually really cool. Uh, considering where Wonder Woman was at this point, this is the early 70s, this is just before the TV show, it's a little surprising that they decided to reprint Wonder Woman number one and Sensation number one in the famous first edition format, but I'm glad they did. Well, yeah, I think there are certain publication realities that might have played into that, too. Um, this is a character that, based on what I've heard, DC kind of didn't 100% own at that point in time, which is not dissimilar from what they did with Captain Marvel. But with Captain Marvel, this was a guy who had competed with them for years and years that they knew had had boffo sales, uh, that had only disappeared because the comic book superhero market had tanked, and they just sort of decided to go away from that. So with Captain Marvel, I can see where they have that big push because they got the license of that character. They knew he'd had a, a fan following that probably remained vocal for years after the, the loss of his publication. And so uh, I don't think they took him for granted. Where Wonder Woman is a character that they had been trying to keep alive, in part from what I'm understanding because of the nature of the contract with William Moulton Marston's estate, they had to keep that book out there, but they hadn't really successfully sold it for years and years. And then... Um, so there, there wasn't as big of a push for that character. I think to some degree they kept the character because they were making so much money off the merchandising. Sure. So sure. I don't know if they saw her as a viable publishing character, even after the success of the TV show. Hmm. Okay. That's okay. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, yeah. I mean, I agree with you about the publishing realities. I mean, she was a big, big star. And so, you know, and her first appearances were big, big books for the DC, in DC's history. And so you really would be hard pressed to ignore them. Uh, did you have either one of these when you were younger? When, when did you get this particular book? Uh, honestly, I bought the, the, this uh, edition probably a couple of years ago. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. I think I remember flipping through the all-star uh, first, the famous first and uh, sensation comics or one Woman number one when I was a kid. And it was just too weird. Uh, I, I just didn't get drawn into it. The only one I bought as a child was Superman number one. Uh, I did have some of the Marvel ones, and, uh, but I, I didn't really buy them in part because, you know, I wasn't richy rich like some people. Uh, but, but also, you know, they, these things were on the way out the door when I was coming into comics. Uh, the only time I could find these were like Woolworths. And so having enough money to buy even one at a particular point in time where I had the opportunity to buy them while they were being in competition with stuff like Raiders of the Lost Ark action figures that I could also only find at places like uh, Jim Cohen Woolworths, it, it just didn't quite win out. Um, now, in later years, I've come back to a lot of this Golden Age material and enjoyed it. But in that time period, I just don't think I was open, as open to it. Uh, so I had a lot of love for my Superman number one, but it just didn't compel me to buy a lot of other ones. Yeah, I understand. And the Superman number one, it's funny you mentioned that one was was done way out of sequence with the rest of them. These were all published within about a year of each other, except for the Superman number one, which came along later when they uh, did the Superman movie. They realized they could tie it into that. So, yeah, by the time Superman number one was around, the, the famous first editions really had uh, long since uh, gone belly up, which is a shame because I do enjoy these. And I actually think this particular one and the Wonder Woman one have a, a something, a little something above the other famous first editions, but we'll get to that uh, shortly. Uh, they said there are six features 
in this book, as is typical of the Golden Age stories at the time. Of course, Wonder Woman is the cover attraction. So she's saying, of course, she's the first story, which is Wonder Woman Comes to America by William Moulton Marston and Harry G. Peter, even though, of course, the story is credited to Charles Moulton, who does not exist. So, and the plot of it is such, Wonder Woman is flying an injured Steve Trevor back to America. She brings him to a hospital, and while he is looked at, Wonder Woman walks the streets of Washington, D.C. She causes quite a ruckus, stopping a bank robbery in the process. After seeing what she can do, a theatrical agent named Kale makes her an offer, which she accepts, realizing she'll need money while staying in America. She performs her bullets and bracelets trick, but when Wonder Woman stops the act because she has enough money, the greedy Kale tries to steal it all. At the steps of the hospital, Wonder Woman discovers a young nurse crying hysterically. She explains that her husband, who found a job in South America, doesn't have enough money to send for her. Wonder Woman makes the woman an offer. She'll give her all the money she earned if she will let Wonder Woman assume her identity here in the States. The woman, Diana Prince, agrees. And soon Wonder Woman is dressed as Nurse Prince so she can attend to patient Trevor. While alone, Steve Trevor sees a newspaper article about a new draft quota because of a mysterious enemy that is threatening an army base with a new poison gas. Even though he is risking his life, Trevor leaves the hospital bed and reports to the camp CO for duty. Wonder Woman follows him into the air, helping him stop the mad bomber. They make their way to a secret base where the poison gas is being developed. Wonder Woman and Trevor attack, and the leader of the base blows the whole place up. Trevor breaks his leg, and Wonder Woman once again carts him back to the hospital. Nurse Prince tells him that she is there for him, but he says she will never compare to Wonder Woman. Uh, so that's the intro story to, or the, not the intro, this is the, the first one of Sensation Comics. I had no memory of this story whatsoever. I must have read this as a kid, but I didn't remember it at all uh, going over it. I didn't, I, I had no memory that that's where she got Diana Prince from. Yeah, did you, is this one of the ones you had as a child? I don't think I had this one, no. Yeah, see, a lot of people don't have exposure to these early Wonder Woman stories, and I find that one of my issues with people that are somewhat dismissive of Wonder Woman or have a view of the character that I am in conflict with is that they know the character really through, like, Justice League, through Super Friends. They don't, they never really read her stories, or if they did read her stories, they read them much later in the run under guys like Robert Kaniger. And so the Golden Age stuff has a, a unique flavor. I don't think there are any comics quite as weird in the same ways that comics are weird as these golden age stories. And so it was interesting to me to get to read this as one unit of entertainment, because for a lot of people, I'm sure this was their first exposure to Wonder Woman. Even if they were receptive to this character in 1941, uh, they wouldn't have necessarily seen that she appeared in all-star comics. So for, I'm sure a ton of people, probably the majority of people that were jumping onto the character initially, this was their introduction. So I like having the opportunity to read this on its own to see how people would be exposed to the character, what they would know about the character at this early point. Because there's a lot of stuff that we associate with Wonder Woman that is not present in this story. Uh, you, you know, the Lasso of Truth hasn't been created yet. We really don't get much in the way of background on the Amazons. You don't see the contest. So it's interesting that this is what was expected to be a lot of people's first exposure to this character. And there's a lot of stuff that's so closely associated with her that isn't here yet, but actually was even created. And you wouldn't necessarily have been exposed to it since this is in sensation number one. Right, right, right. right. Uh, the number one thing I think about when I, when I look at this book, and Wonder Woman number one as well, is I don't think the famous first editions uh, being the treasury format necessarily does those original stories a lot of favors because most of the time the artwork is pretty crude. And seeing it bigger doesn't really 
<laughs> you know, I don't think it makes it better. Uh, except in this case, I really like Harry G. Peter's work. It doesn't look like anything else any, that anybody's ever really done for comics. And the reprints I've seen of old Wonder Woman stories where they were reprinted in normal-sized books, to me it's literally hard to figure out what's going on because there's so much detail. But here they're nice and bigger and cleaner. And so I actually think these Wonder Woman books benefit from the larger size. I think Harry G. Peter's work is really interesting to look at. He had a, obviously a very unique style and something that really sets apart uh, the creators of Wonder Woman versus uh, the typical creator in comics. Where these were older guys. Both of these fellows were middle-aged. Uh, William Moulton Marston wouldn't live to see really the end of the Golden Age. Um, and because Harry G. Peter has this weird sort of like wood carving style, like like it almost looks like wood engravings the way he yeah, draws. Yeah, yeah. Benefits from that large size, but also notice how dialogue heavy this book is compared to any of the other stories in the book and just comics in general. I, I don't recall in Golden Age comics really seeing, like, especially on, the, on some of the early pages where you're seeing all the overlapping dialogue, different people are all talking at the same time in the same panel. And in a normal format comic, that would look really cramped, but here, blown up. It's, it's, it's given the space that it needs to feel comfortable, to not feel so claustrophobic. And you're getting a lot of information. You're getting a lot of different voices. And it almost reminds me like the comic equivalent of Robert Altman, where you follow <laughs> And that's something that I don't think people had really done in comics before. And I don't think people bring that up when they, when they talk about these comics, that that was sort of a new thing in this young medium. It's an interesting idea, yeah. I mean, on page three, there's a panel with four different people talking. That's, that's pretty hard to pull off. And what's interesting, too, is it would be very easy for that to become a jumble, but because they're so thoughtful in how each panel is laid out, you know exactly in what order to read all the, the panel, the dialogue balloons, so you're, you're able to flow with the story very easily. Yeah, I, I, really, uh, I really enjoyed this quite a bit. I was like, I, it wasn't like I wasn't expecting to, but it just had a different tone to it than I remember. I don't remember the whole bits of like Wonder Woman having to go get a job. Like it, it just seems so different from, like you said, from the Wonder Woman most people know. So, you know, I feel like, well, this thing is, is doing what it's supposed to do. It's giving you, you know, a peek into the very early notion of Wonder Woman. And what's great about the Wonder Woman stories, too, is because so many of them operate on a dream logic, a lot of times I'll go back and I'll read a comic book, and especially if it's something that I've read a few times. I'm so familiar with the story that it almost feels like a redundant exercise to reread it. I could probably just scan the pictures because I know the story so well. And that doesn't really happen with Wonder Woman comics because they're so full of bizarre incidents that don't necessarily follow a, a linear plot or, or that don't uh, hit the expected beats that it's very hard to remember all the, the particular details of any given Wonder Woman story. So every time you read one, it's sort of like the first time because you're like, oh, yeah, I forgot that part. Oh, yeah, this happens. And there's just so many cool, weird, random incidents that you, you really get a sense of compression. This is the opposite of modern comics. There's so much happening in the story. You can't remember all those details. And so you get a lot of bang for the buck on every single page. Yeah, I mean, the entire fight on the Nazi island is one page. They land on the they page, land on the page, and, and by the and final, by the final it's panel, it's exploded, exploded, and you see with the rubble and stuff. So yeah, it is a, yeah, it is a, a remarkably compressed. And it's funny too, if you ever watch the the seventies TV show, there's a lot of fidelity to these early stories in the, the pilot, especially the whole sequence where they're trying to sell bullets and bracelets on uh, as a, as a, a, a show. Um, that that's in the the, the pilot. 
I think Red Buttons plays the the promoter, the the corrupt promoter, and so you're getting to see that they obviously went back and read those comics, and it, it's interesting how they adapted that to live action. In some ways, they were more faithful in, especially the Wonder Woman pilot, but really throughout the series to the comics than even the the Superman movie that's so revered for its fidelity. But they definitely took liberties with Superman that. I think evolved that character beyond where he had been in the comics, but on the TV show, they're, they're remarkably faithful. It's, it's not a dissimilar approach to what they did with the Batman 66 show, except with Wonder Woman, it may have been camp, but it wasn't intentional comedy, that overt subversion of the expectations of, of, a, of a, a, a television medium, the way Batman was, where they were so literal that it's almost like a joke that they're trying to be that faithful. It actually sort of translates more faithfully to live action in a way that audiences could could roll with in a way that I don't think they could with Batman. They they always kind of snickered a little bit of Batman where it kind of you can get it over with one one a little bit better. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. Cool. It's I really, cool. I really I, I enjoyed, I, this, I enjoyed uh, quite a bit. Uh, so next up is uh, the, uh, the Black the Black Pirate. Pirate. So Frank, so take, Frank it take it away. Okay, and and before we regress to, I've got a a decent. You know, like a, a few paragraphs of, of synopsis. How deep do you want me to go in this, given that you've got the other material as well? I wrote like I, two paragraphs for each. Actually, I, for the other two features, I stole it from Mike's Amazing World. So uh, basically, <laughs> like two, I, and I'm going to cop to that. Uh, basically, like I tell you, like two paragraphs each, I think is probably sufficient. Okay, that's not too bad. I've, they're, they're slightly longish paragraphs, but they, it's about in that realm. So I'm, I'm trying not to bog it down too much. So the Black Pirate by Shelley begins in 1558 with the titular's brigand's ship cutting through Mediterranean waters. John's Mallard crew recognizes that he's heartsick over the loss of his lady love, that wench Bonnie that he rescued from that tavern in Buena Vista. She was very pretty and full of mischief as the devil himself. What the crewman didn't know was that though he, she had appeared to be an orphan beggar whose vivaciousness and merry wit had won his cap, their captain to his, their captain to his side. Uh, in truth, Bonnie was Dona Bonita, the runaway promised bride of Don Carlos, the cruel son of King Philip of Spain. Dona Bonita had been recaptured months earlier and taken far from her pirate lover. Soon, and despite putting up a valiant fight, the black pirate ship is eventually overtaken by Don Carlos's forces. Though they are aware under whose flag the ship sailed, the authorities do not realize that John Valor and the black pirate are one and the same, assuming their primary target had again eluded them. John Valor joins the rest of his men bound for prison in Spain, where he is spotted by Dona Bonita. The maiden begs the sympathies of her priest, Father Fernando, who agrees to use his credentials to sneak Bonnie, sorry, sneak the Bonnie lass into jail for an impromptu wedding. Dona Bonita and the priest then successfully plead clemency for her, the new husband. Dona Bonita and the priest then successfully plead clemency for her new husband from King Philip himself. Even though Don Carlos swears to see both his former fiance and her priest hanged, King Philip insists, be quiet, my son. What has been done has been done by a servant of God. As part of his plea agreement, John Valor joined a... As part of his plea agreement, John Valor gained a title and was bound to serve the cause of Spanish justice going forward, even as Don Carlos plotted to only send him on the most dangerous missions, hoping he would not return from them alive. The story I thought was fine. fine. Um, I like the artwork a lot. It, it, to me, it has a very kind of uh, almost like crude Frazetta type feel to it in some places. I like the contrast with the, the Wonder Woman story. I, my only familiarity with Black Pirate really is from the Who's Who listing by Jerry Ordway, where he's got a mask on. And here he doesn't have a mask. So I have to assume that that was something they added to the feature down the line. Yeah, this was a strip that, that 
definitely uh, evolved over the course of its time. This is the only strip that was inherited from another title. Uh, the Black Pirate actually got its start in Action Comics. Oh, that's right. I forgot that. Oh, you're right. You're right. So it would be like, you know, a little three to five page story, and it would be done in text only, so like Prince Valiant. So over the course of the series, it's a long serial. It's not like most of the, the strips in Action Comics were one and done's. But with Black Pirate, it was it was intended to be this long serial, and then it eventually started introducing dialogue, and then once it switched to Sensation Comics, they would do done-in-one stories with dialogue, but you still had this slightly more serialized nature, because in a few episodes, uh, the Black Pirate and his, his Bonnie Lass would have a child, and then their son Justin would become his sidekick once the script jumped 12 years into the future, wow. and it had sort of a, a pirate, buccaneer, Batman and Robin thing going on. And this strip lasted for like several years in Sensation Comics. And then it moved over to All-American and outlived most of the Golden Age. Wow. <laughs> Good for him. I guess it, that helps to pirates for the most part were always going to be in favor. I mean, they were making pirate movies well into the 60s. So, uh, you know, as superheroes faded from, from popularity, I guess it helped that you could sort of transition the strip in and out of being a superhero strip versus a pirate strip. If we lived in the Watchmen universe, will Black Pirate be neck and neck with Tales of the Black Freighter in popularity, I'm sure? There you go. Yeah, you've been reading it on newsstands and stuff. Yeah, it's a nice, it works as a nice contrast, like I said, to the Wonder Woman strip. I think it's, it's a, it, you know, it gives us a nice, uh, nice sense of variety. I, I like the art. I really like that big splash page on the first page, too. Yeah, you know, you can tell that Shelley Maldoff is just going to town doing, like you said, his sort of rough take on Frazetta or his sort of an Alex Raymond thing going on there. I like how much emphasis there is placed on the relationship between Donna Bonita and the Black Pirate 2. Unfortunately, that character gets lost as the series progresses. But I, I don't know if maybe they had her in there so prominently because of Sensation Comics as, as a female support to Wonder Woman. But I, I really like that relationship. I like the serialized nature of the stories. And I just had a lot of fun with this. I, I thought, and, I, and I've had this happen a lot when I've gone back and read Golden Age comics, especially DC ones, where they're kind of a drag. They're just too too out of sync with the interests of modern times. But there wasn't a single strip in this book that I couldn't flow with. And especially if the pirate strip sells me, I do think this book was maybe a cut above. And no pun intended. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. It's interesting stuff. So, all right. Uh, I think, uh, do we have anything else for Black Pirate or do we want to move on? We move on. Okay. Next up is Mr. Terrific from Charles Reisenstein and Harold Wilson Sharp. Uh, now I have to cop to something. I stole this plot synopsis from Mike's Amazing World. Uh, these, <laughs> I find these plot synopses from 40s comics to be incredibly time-consuming and dense. So I, I, I wrote the Wonder Woman one myself, but the, I, this one and the next one that I do, I stole from Mike's Amazing World. So I have to thank the site for that. So anyway, it says, Terry Sloan was a boy genius at the age of 10 and graduated at age 12. Uh, graduate college at age 12. However, through though he finds success at everything he tries, both physical and intellectual, Terry is bored with his life because it presents no challenge for him. While contemplating suicide, Terry saves the life of Wanda Wilson, who wants to kill herself because her brother has joined a gang. Terry offers to help and designs a costume for himself. He then confronts Wanda's brother, Billy, and his friends. He proves that Big Shot, the gang leader the boys idolize, is a coward and turns their lives around. In doing so, Terry finds new purpose for his own life as the costumed Mr. Terrific. Uh, okay, Mr. Terrific, I think, let's see if you, you are the same way as I am, Frank, but my association with Mr. Terrific is basically comes from two comics, and that is JLA 171 and 172, where they kill him off. Uh, I really had no familiarity with this character until I was much older. 
same difference. Same here. Yeah. I mean, well, there wasn't a lot to, to uh, engage with because unless you go back to the old sensation comics, he didn't have much of a run beyond that. And he didn't really have much of a role in the JLA JSA team ups throughout the silver age. He just right. was a non-entity. It seemed like, yeah, they bring him on stage in those issues just to kill him off basically. Uh, but I, I don't know. I like the character. I mean, he certainly found new life in the modern age, and he's been on TV and stuff like that. Uh, he's a kind of a gentler superhero. You know, I mean, anybody that runs around with the words fair play emblazoned on your stomach is, you know, he's, he's probably you got to be a tough guy. But at the same time, he's you know, sort of a gentle superhero. Uh, it's kind of, kind of a grim opening, really, that he wants to kill himself and then Wanda's going to kill herself. It's like. That's a lot of death going on in this story, which is featuring a superhero with his little teen sidekicks and stuff. But it, it was it's cute. It's very wordy. Uh, I think it's even wordier than the Wonder Woman story in some places. Uh, I kind of like how incongruous his costume is. It's got the Christmas colors, but with the yellow gloves, uh, the fair play club is certainly something that, you know, probably doesn't age terribly well in our more cynical modern times. But I don't know. It's cute. And I, I like the whole patriot patriotic notion of it. Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest. Again, going into this book, I was somewhat dreading it because I wasn't sure how I was going to enjoy these stories, especially. <laughs> and it, Mr. Terrific is the most uh, like what I was expecting to find in the book. Uh, the story was all right. I, I could get through it. Thankfully, I didn't have like four other stories just like this one. But yeah, the, the costume's not too great. Uh, I, I kind of greatly dislike this character because I, I don't like his motivation. There's a guy who's Instead of trying to find something beneficial to the world, he's like, I'm too accomplished. I'm going to go jump in the river. It's like, really, dude? Um, so, and then, and honestly, the, the fact that the, the sister is going to kill herself just because her, her brother got involved with organized crime, it's like, really? That's, that's going to be your motivation to jump off a bridge? So, <laughs> I, I'm not buying the motivations. You're, you're right. It's very talky. A lot of people saying speeches to one another. Um, I, I think that the Michael Holt, Mr. Terrific, is a much more interesting character. So for me, this is like, this is the closest to ballast the issue has. <laughs> okay. <laughs> They had to have so many pages to get those postal regulations or something. So you got to got to put something in here. Uh, yeah, he's he's a real square, but I don't know. I kind of like it, and it's 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 a sort of goofy. It's interesting to me that it seems like uh, all these features, the artists found the space to sign their artwork, which is unusual at the time. Like on the very last page of the Mister Terrific feature, Hal Sharp puts his name in there uh, in one of the panels. Like this kind of seems unusual, and the movies that Irwin Hazen does it later on and. Uh, H.G. Peter did it at the last panel of the Wonder Woman story. These guys really wanted to make sure they were credited properly. Well, and also I think that they were allowed it at All-American. Uh, they weren't at having this kind of strict oversight that National would have had. Oh, I right, right, right. And erase that stuff. But I, I think Max Gaines was probably a little more liberal about giving credit. I think you're right. That's probably exactly correct. All right, cool. All right, well, next up, The Gay Ghost. Which uh, begins in 18th century Ireland with Keith Everett, Earl of Strathmere, riding out from the ancient castle of Connaugh by horse with the intention of asking for the hand of the lady Deborah Wallace in marriage. The nobleman, the nobleman is set upon by highwaymen and murdered by his own pistol turned against him while engaged in a sword fight. Deborah Wallace's men hear the gunshot and are able to secure for the dying Everett a brief goodbye with his would-be bride before his passing into the afterlife. They also secured for his murderers a short length of rope upon a tall tree. Uh, the ghost of Keith Everett was met by his ancestors, a long line of warriors who wished to instruct the Earl in both martial and metaphysical skills that would allow him to return to Earth as an instrument for justice. That education took much longer than expected, so that by the time Everett returned to the mortal coil, Deborah Wallace had shuffled off of it. Part of the Earl's oath was that he would wait to be reunited with Deborah before beginning his campaign, so he haunted Castle Connaught, 
for decades in her absence. Everett began inhabiting a painting of himself during the day and practicing new ectoplasmic tricks by night. In 1941, Deborah Wallace was seemingly reincarnated as her own American descendant of the same name, who came to visit her in who came to visit her inherited castle in Ireland with her period-appropriate, friend-zoned, ducky equivalent, Charles Cullen. Unfortunately for them both, a small band of Nazi spies had taken refuge on their way to Germany with stolen English plans. Between Deborah discovering the ghost of Keith Everett and Charles running into a Nazi bullet, things go pear-shaped rather quickly. However, one of the late Earl of Strathmere's supernatural powers was the ability to possess anyone with an ounce of good in them. Through his sacrifice to save Deborah, the otherwise disreputable Charles Collins proved provided purchase for Keith Everett to take over his corpse as a meat puppet to throw against the Nazi jaws. Uh, the so-called gay ghost easily overpowers and captures the Nazis, using his spooky abilities to force confessions from a lot of them. Seeing that he had finally found the mission of his second life, the gay ghost continues to inherit Charles Collins as he returned to America to continue battling evil and to struggle for the unwilling hand of Deborah Wallace in his adopted form. Okay. okay. <laughs> Uh, this one, again, I like the idea. I like the character. I, I'm really, again, only familiar with him mostly from Who's Who, where, of course, he's called the Grim Ghost, which is very funny. They picked the, the name, the furthest away name possible from his original name. Uh, this is another really top-heavy story. I mean, pay, I don't forget what page it is, but it's somewhere middle of the story. There is one page that is got so many words in it, it just almost topples over. I'm amazed of how much dialogue is in here. And this is a fairly long story. This is 13 pages, which is as long as the Wonder Woman story, but a good five pages longer than Mr. Terrific or the Black Pirate. So I'm sort of curious as to why he was given such space. Uh, I guess they wanted to have a, a more, another superhero, superpowered being. Uh, I think that by this point in time, there were so many Batman likes out there, so many regular people running around in costumes just punching folks that they maybe wanted to emphasize the more superpowered characters in this book. Uh, even though, like you said, sometimes they just give up and they give a whole panel over to nothing but dialogue talking about what new power is being manifested by the gay ghost. Um, but what's fun about this one, I, I do like seeing the incredible powers. It, it, this character reminds me a lot of Superman and the Spectre to where it's funny because when you look at the, the Secret Origin story, which I'm sure a lot of people were familiar with, either through the actual comic or through Brian Daly's podcast, the expectation is this guy's going to be like a like small ass supernatural. You know, he's like he's a ghost, he can do a few ghostly things, but for the most part he's gonna be like a dead man type. Where in this story, and if you go and you look at the, the other stories throughout the Sensation Run, he's a full-on Spectre type. He's flying, he's, he's got this gimmick that he likes to do where he turns intangible so that somebody's trying to shoot at him, and instead they shoot their own men. The um, whole time laughing, as much as I want to throw out a bunch of homosexual puns, the truth is, he is a gay ghost. He's, he's having fun with it, he's enjoying it, he's trying to win his lady love, he's, he's liking socking Nazis and extremely racist caricature Japanese people. Um, he's just having a gas with it, and it's actually a pretty fun strip. Uh, and I like to, I've had my issues with Gardner Fox, who wrote this one. Uh, a lot of times because he gets too much into the science, he gets too much into the weeds of the plot details. And it seems like with this strip, he really gets to cut loose. It's supernatural. It, it stars a ghost. You know, you don't have to try to explain everything away. So you can just get lost in the, the fantasy of it all. And Howard Purcell's art's nice. It's not spectacular, but it's solid. I, I think, it, again, it's a little bit better than average for uh, Golden Age stuff. So I, I, I had a real blast out of this one. As heavy as the, the, the text was, it's still a fun read and reasonably brisk uh, because it has good momentum. 
Yeah, I agree. It is kind of a shame that they. Shame that they. I understand why they renamed him, but if it feels a shame that they had to, you know, that you're kind of having to run from the character. Because I mean, calling him the Grim Ghost when he used to be the Gay Ghost is just like okay, we're you know we're overcompensating a little bit here. Well, and he was probably particularly uh, toxic in the '70s uh, yeah. with uh, Stonewall and with the, the real push for gay recognition, just recognition that gays actually existed in our society. Um, but it could have been more easily and more appropriately solved by just the gallant ghost. You know, he's already a nobleman anyway. Um, and I gotta say too, his costume makes a lot more sense with all the powers because when you see him flying around and he's got the hip boots on and all the bright colors, he, he works a lot better when you play him as a big supernatural Superman rather than trying to play him as the grim, dark, shadowy figure that I guess they maybe tried to portray him as, but it, it never seemed to take hmm. to gallon, what degree they ever hmm. bothered. I the gallant ghost. I like that. That would have been like that. great. <laughs> you needed to be there, Frank, when they were renaming him. Uh, so, all right, well, next up is Little Blue, Little Boy Blue and the Blue Boys by Bill Finger. Before you get started, don't forget about Gunner Godby. Oh, well, yeah, I didn't, I didn't mention the text piece, Gunner Godby, the story of the First World War by George S. Hurst Jr. You know, when I, I was a, I, yes. Am, so I, I have to, we have to deal with this if I bother to read these two pages of text. All right, go right, go ahead, talk about Gunner Godby. Well, did you, do you remember the story from your childhood? No, I didn't, I never would have read this. <laughs> Good reason for that. So the story takes place in World War One, and basically it's some guy named Gunner who is in a biplane, and he decides to take his dog Nick with him and go flying in enemy territory. He's daydreaming when suddenly bullets start rippling across his instrument panel. He freaks out. He gets into a dog fight. He passes out at one point. The dog licks him to wake him up. He finishes part of the dog fight. He crashes into the ocean. The dog pulls him to shore and saves him. They uh, uh, find that the German plane that they had shot down had managed to land safely. They pull the corpse of the German fighter out of the plane, pick up flying into the plane. Supposedly, I think they're trying to intercept another fighter before it gets to their friendly base. But I think that either gets lost or maybe I just got confused because at this point I'm starting to lose interest in the story. <laughs> so they're flying the German plane into Allied territory or whatever the equivalent was in World War One. They get shot down. They, they, let, they come down low enough so they're able to jump off the plane. And eventually, uh, Gunner wakes up. His dog limps in with a broken leg. Everything's great, and he's a hero. End of story. All right, fair enough. Yeah, I, I never understood why they had these features uh, in these books, other than it was probably, it was probably to, to fill uh, postal regulations, because you had to have like a certain kind of article in a periodical to, for it to qualify for certain postal codes or something like that. It was kind of like... Uh, you know, maybe I'm revealing too much, but like in the 80s, like really like hardcore porno mags used to have articles on like the weapons of war. And I was like, why is there an article <laughs> on, on you know, fighter jets in the middle of this porno magazine? So I have to assume this is, again, some sort of postal regulation thing. I 100% believe that. But, hey, that's where Stanley got to start, so some good came out of it. Hey, oh, yeah, I mean, I don't mean to knock them. I mean, it's. I mean, there's probably some really good stuff buried in there, but I have to admit, as a kid, I just would skip right over those. I was like, well, yeah, I'm not reading this. Me too, 100%. But the funny thing is, because I was committed to doing this synopsis, having read those two pages of nothing but dense text, it was kind of cute. It was, it, wasn't, it, was, it was goofy. It was kind of fun, so I, I don't feel bad about it. I admire your commitment. Uh, we should mention, I love the, uh, the ad for... 
the uh, follow the adventures of Hop Harrigan every month in all adventure comics, and you can join the All American Flying Club and you get a little pin. I love it. I am digging this out. I, you know, this is the kind of thing where I'd love to maybe go try and find this pin on eBay or something. It looks really cool. Yeah, this stuff was pretty much all over with by my my time. I'm pretty oh, sure yeah. by time as well. Just to show how much I wanted to be a part of a club like this, though, I actually tried to join the Get Along Gang. Okay, <laughs> it was the only club that ever came along in my time that gave you the opportunity of trying to have a membership. I sent in my membership fee, never got anything back. <laughs> <laughs> Gang rejected me, and maybe that explains a lot about me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the irony. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, that's, that's oh, so and sad. also, you forget, Hop Harrigan was a big deal back then. I think that was more like one of the bigger stars. He got a serial in a radio show, right? Yeah, yeah. He was a, as a, yeah, for relatively, he was a pretty big deal. Yeah, there's a mini, there's, a, yes, as you said, there's a movie serial, a radio show. He was really relatively famous. So, yeah, he had his own club. I mean, Shazam had a club, and I think. Superman had a club, but I don't think any of the other characters had their own solo club. So, pretty big, pretty buddy. big deal. All right. Got to cap. Yep. Oh, that's right. Captain America, of course, too. So, uh, all right. Well, next up, now we're getting to Little Boy Blue and the Blue Boys. I know you've all been waiting for this one. It's by Bill Finger and Jim Blummer. Wolf Lupo, a gang boss, is running a protection racket in Big City. Witnesses are afraid to testify except one name named Kraus. Lupo's men kidnap Kraus and take him to their hideout to silence him. Meanwhile, District Attorney Dan Rogers is puzzled on how to proceed against Lupo. Rogers' son, Tommy, offers to help, but his father denies him. Instead, Tommy and his friend Tubby dress as mystery men and visit their clubhouse, where they find Krauss, the kidnapped man. The boys take on the gangsters, and the timely arrival of another boy named Tuffy allows them to triumph and rescue Krauss. They decide not to reveal their identities and continue as mystery men. Uh, yeah, okay. What do you think? I liked it better than Mr. Terrific. Okay, all right. I, I have never... I like the character motivations better. The art, I think, was better. Um, it, it, I, I like Tuffy. I just love this guy coming out of nowhere, just like, hey, guys, you need some help? <laughs> I love this little young thug showing up. So, that no, was kind of cute. <laughs> um, I always, as a kid, I've always had a problem with kid superheroes because I never related to them. Like, I didn't want to be Robin. I wanted to be Batman. I, f I found Robin annoying, actually, and so kid superheroes just never did a whole lot for me. But, you know, over time, DC's managed to find some things to do with Little Boy Blue and the Blue Boys. And, you know, the idea of, like, they're kind of on the, you know, while, while the men are away fighting the war, you know, kids are back here fighting crime. That, that's fine. And I, I agree. I think the artwork uh, by Jim Blummer is more solid. Uh, I like it when they jump on the, the gangsters' heads with the pots and start banging on their heads. It's very uh, Stormtrooper Z-Walk thing. Uh, so yeah, it's you know a cute, cute little kids feature. Plus, I love that they're going after Wolf Lupo, which is sort of like Peter O'Toole. And, 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 <laughs> you're kind of saying the same thing twice. <laughs> I hadn't really thought of it that, but yeah, that's exactly right. And I think this turns up in like one of the other uh, advertisements for one of the other books. They keep using human as a superlative. This strip is going to be amu amusing, human, exciting. <laughs> Human means something in 1941 that I don't know about that I've missed somewhere along the line. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. So, uh, okay, well, let's move on to the final story. Frank, take it away. Ah, yes. I, the one you've all been waiting for if you don't like Wonder Woman, it's Wildcat. Uh, Henry Grant was an easily bruised man who wanted a better life for his son. He ensured Ted would have every opportunity to enjoy a life of sports, uh, proving very proficient in all of them, but especially boxing. Henry Grant died young, leaving his son nothing in the midst of the Great Depression. Young Ted dropped out of college and drifted for a time. Hungry and jobless, Ted happened upon a robbery. 
Foiling it, Ted learns the intended victim was heavyweight champion Soccer Smith, who treats his rescuer to a meal. Soccer sets up Ted as his sparring partner at the gym, which attracts the attention of his managers, Flint and Skinner. Soon, Ted Grant is winning his own matches, until he proves to be Soccer Smith's only competition for the championship. Ted is still deeply indebted to Soccer, despite having to will himself not to get lost in his girlfriend Joan Fortune's blue eyes. The crooked managers see th uh, that as an angle, a leaky word that Ted and Joan were catting around. Soccer's no sucker, though, and doesn't fall for it, but agrees that Ted deserves a shot at the title. The two have a bout, but wanting to gin up melodrama, Flint and Skinner plant a drug needle in Ted's glove. They only intended to knock out soccer, but instead they overdosed him. The managers then pin the manslaughter on Ted, then try to wreck his transport to jail to keep him quiet. Uh, Ted Grant sur survives, and uh, trying to figure out how he's going to clear his name, runs across a boy reading a comic book about Green Lantern. He learns about the concept of costume vigilanteism and decides that that's for him. So he finds this cat costume, puts it on, and begins threatening the various people related to Flint and Skinner until he manages to force a confession out of a lot of them. And then afterwards, his name clear decides to continue superheroing in this new identity of Wildcat. All right. Uh -huh. uh, what do you think? I liked it. I, the thing is, is Erwin Hayson drew the strip, and he's, you know, Erwin Hayson of uh, Kubert School fame. I think he was the instructor of somebody involved with podcasting. I keep hearing about it all the time. I can't. <laughs> also, he's the creator of Dondi, which is a movie that. Have you seen Dondi? It, it seems like you've talked about Dondi in the past at some point. I have never seen the Dondi movie, mm -hmm. and uh, it's not available anywhere, as far as I know. It's not on DVD or anything. And we asked Erwin. Uh, one time about it because uh, we, he, he talked about that there was a Dondi movie. None of us knew that. And we said, wow, they made a movie of Dondi? Was it any good? And he goes, nah, it's a piece of shit. <laughs> yeah, I remember that one. Um, but anyway, it was sort of a self-swipe because Erwin Hayson had also created the Fox for MLJ, later Archie Comics. And they both have a similar look to them. They're basically black silhouettes, sort of like ninjas, with gigantic, weird animal heads. And he sort of looked like a bunny with dysentery. He looked like on Spicer had become a vigilante. <laughs> He's more like a bunny rabbit, but he's all saggy and out of sorts. And the, the fox just looked like a, a sad spectacle in his early stories. But eventually he tightened up. He, he became skin tight. He basically looked like a ninja, which Rich Buckler leaned into in the 80s. And basically Wildcat has that same look. It, it's, he's basically all black with some highlights. And the only thing that, that really stands out is the great big cat head and the great big cat feet of all things. And so it's, it's weird because it looks so cool on the comic book page, even though there's got to be a part of the fanboy brain that's like, this is ridiculous, but it looks so cool that you kind of want to let it go. He actually reminds me a lot of Frank Frazetta's Jaguar God or Red Wolf, these guys who basically wear an animal skull on their heads, and they look like they're bad enough to pull it off, so you kind of let them have it. Um, but I love how the later strips he gets his own cat cycle with a big cat face on the front of it. I, I think that maybe if the strip had just leaned a little bit more into satire, you know, maybe got sort of like a Jack Cole or an Otto Bender to, to write it, Wildcat might be one of the greats today. But as it is, just as a single strip, it looks cool. It's a great origin story. And I get a kick out of the incestuous nature of uh, Wildcats inspired by a Green Lantern comic to become a superhero himself. And then later on, or earlier on, actually, the Little Boys Blue are inspired by a Wildcats comic strip that you haven't read yet to become the Little Boy Blue. Uh, yeah, no, I really like this. Uh, I love the splash page. I think the splash page is amazing. Uh, I love the off-kilter angle and the other uh, crook with his face down smashed on the table. I love the red type on the yellow, bright yellow background. Wildcat's costume, as you're right, if you look at it too closely, it's unfathomably goofy. But when it's done kind of in just this black with just the blue highlights, it looks really cool. I wish I had seen this book 
when I had Irwin as a teacher because I would have had him sign it. I like thought this was really cool because I was really only familiar with Irwin when he was an instructor as uh, the guy that did Dondi. And Dondi, you know, I'll admit, when I was 18, didn't have any resonance for me at all. So I was kind of like, all right, I just didn't have a great familiarity with who Irwin was. I mean, I knew that he'd had a long career. But, I mean, if I had seen this, I would have been like, whoa, this is really cool. I, I think this is... Yeah, other there's other pages where he looks really goofy. There's a there's a one on page nine of the story. There's a close up of just him in his mask, and he has his eyes kind of rolled up in his head, where he says, "Wildcat is about to make another entrance," and he just looks really really silly. But uh, I like the minimalism of it. It's got a kind of like almost Alex Tothian. I know that I say that about a lot of artists, um, and it's probably a little too much of a compliment. But I I like the bare bones of it. Uh, the bare bones ish of it of it. I'm, I'm mangling my my phrase here, but I mean I don't know. There's just the simplicity to it that I like. I've always liked the character of Ted Grant. I think they've done a lot with him over the years, which I think maybe maybe helps. You know how much I like this story, and I know that they're going to do some cool things with him. So I, I dig this. I, I this was I think my second favorite strip uh, of after Wonder Woman. I think this is a, a really pretty cool feature. Well, and I think because the costume is so easy to draw that there's a greater emphasis placed on the positioning of the body and on like the, the anatomy, the, the curves along the edges, because he's not filling in the details, I think there's a little bit more care in, in, in how he's positioned. So there's a greater dynamism than he might have had otherwise. I think it's great that he's got the fingerless gloves. Everything else is drenched in black, but you see those fingers, which means you see those fists as they're coming at the fellows. I like that he's got that Joe Schuster jaw to him. He's got that real strong jawline where you could tell this is a man of action. The art does everything possible to sell that costume, and at least on the comic book page, it's very effective. And I think there's something as silly as those giant clawed feet are. See, especially on the splash page, it, it's pretty intimidating. You you can imagine what that would do to the human body. It's a lot like seeing one of the big cats in real life and realizing this is no kitty. This thing would what this would do to me if this thing connects is terrifying. So he, he's very impressive on the comic page, and it's a very fun story. I think it's a great origin story, and I think that. Unlike a lot of Golden Age characters, you really get a sense of who Ted Grant is within this first story. You, you know who this guy is, and so it's a lot easier to root for him because he's not just a generic hero. He's, he's kind of a, he's a regular guy. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a bohunk, but he's a good guy. He's not going to just backstab this guy who did for him. And I really think it helps, too. I don't know if the – did they do a Wildcat Secret Origin, or was he just in the Adam story? Uh, no, I don't think he got his got word. Yeah, I loved seeing this guy who was in college, and then he's down on his luck, and he's he's hungry, and he doesn't know what he's going to do. You know, he doesn't really have any prospects. It makes me root much more for Wildcat that he was so far down at a time when the country itself had been so far down that you want to see him pick himself back up again. You want to see him triumph. And so I, I I'm sold on Wildcat in a way I can't be sold on this terrific a guy who's got everything handed to him and doesn't appreciate it <laughs> fair enough uh so yeah i mean that's that's sensation comics number one i mean it's it's an interesting kind of grab bag of features i mean most books were back then sensation comics unlike action and detective didn't last it, it went away in the 50s uh the late 40s early 50s and then i mean didn't they change it over to a mystery title near the end when the when the superhero comics were circling the drain I think it was sensation mystery there at the very end, and yeah, it was it was a full on horror, like almost black cat horror. It was it was kind of intense 
And certainly if you were following the book from the beginning or at any point for most of its run, to see that sudden shift toward EC territory must have been jarring. And, you know, again, I think it came down to mail rates. There was a situation where uh, they didn't have to pay – if they didn't want to have to pay for a new title, so they would just drastically change it. It didn't seem like that worked for very many books. Uh, but there was a certain desperation. Obviously, it was the gangsters and the horror that was selling it by that point. Uh, the superheroes were on their way out. And I, I guess it's better that, you know, Sensation bit the dust. But I've always wanted DC to successfully revive Sensation Comics. I've always, you know, again, you're talking about Wonder Woman not getting your Treasury Edition. My gripe is that we've never gotten that second Wonder Woman title as an ongoing either. Uh, I was a big fan of the Sensation anthology they had for a couple of years there. And I, I really enjoyed getting those out of continuity one-off stories from a variety of creators. Uh, Truth to tell, I was enjoying Wonder Woman in Sensation Comics more than I was enjoying Wonder Woman at the time it was being published. Um, So I'm a a big fan of Sensation Comics. I like these characters, and I I, I root for a lot of them, if only by association with Wonder Woman. But I do think that reading the story, despite my being disposed towards liking it, I I do think that, you know, there's a text piece at the beginning of the book where they're saying, look, we've toiled this book for months. We wanted this to be the best book possible. And I I really do enjoy this one. I think it deserves this great big presentation with the bronze uh, ink and everything else. It it, it feels like a more substantial book uh, that, that deserves this format. I agree. And like I mentioned in the previous episode when I had Michael Lane on to talk about Wiz Comics number two, this book was done in hardcover as well by Lyle Stewart, uh, which was a publisher that sort of that handled the hardcover sides. I have one. Uh, it's hard to find, but I, but I do own it. So, yeah, it's, it's cool. Wonder Woman absolutely deserves it. And, you know, I mean, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to do such a big episode because it's finally time for her movie so i want to ask you like what are your thoughts about the movie what what are your hopes for it what do you feel like you've seen so far i mean i know you're excited about it because you have a wonder woman podcast and you love the character but i mean look, where are you sort of going into it as we're by the time everybody hears this the movie will be out but of course as we're recording it's not here yet so so where are you on the on the movie I'm relieved and have been relieved in the uh, weeks up to the movie that so many people are saying that it's, it's a solid flick. Uh, matter of fact, the most recent wave of reviews are saying that it's the best DCEU movie, which admittedly not a high bar to clear. Right. Um, I'm, I'm, given how much I've invested in this character in my time, but also recognizing how diverse and to some degree how divided Wonder Woman fandom is, I'm trying to go into this as a movie and not bring what I want a one-on-one movie to be into this with me. I want to see this movie succeed, and I want to be entertained by it. I'm going to try not to bring any prejudice into it as much as I possibly can. And I'm, I'm expecting, reasonably expecting to be entertained. Everything from it looks solid. Uh, I've heard very good things. I, I don't think it's going to completely blow my mind. But as long as it's entertaining and as long as it gets people energized about the character, I'm grateful for his existence. And just, it's about damn time, you know? That's we got our one-on-one movie, true. finally. And, it, and apparently it's not going to suck, so... Glad to hear it. Yeah, yeah that's, that's true. Absolutely. So. All right. Well, uh, Frank, thank you so much for coming on, man. I appreciate it. Like I said I wanted to do a big Wonder Woman episode, and I knew you were such a huge fan. I've been enjoying Diana Prince Wonder Woman. Uh, so tell people all about the podcast where people, if anybody, I don't know anybody listening to this that isn't listening to Diana Prince Wonder Woman, but give people a chance of what the show's all about. Uh, well, it's a lot of me. <laughs> so it's my solo shows. It's it's similar 
to the Island of Diablo, if you've listened to that, my Martian Manor podcast. But I've been trying to spend more time with Wonder Woman because it's her 75th anniversary year. Uh, I've been struggling to, to juggle that time, but uh, I, I'm basically exploring the, the side roads of Wonder Woman. I'm not trying to spend a lot of time with the Amazons, with the, the stuff that people know about the character. I like dealing with the, the lesser-known creators that I enjoy, guys like Mike Sikowski and William Mester Loeb's, whose runs seem to have been lost in the shuffle. And, uh, you know, trying to give a, a look at Robert Kaniger, who spent a lot of time on the character, despite you know a lot of misgivings about his run, and and just trying to look at Wonder Woman, her her entirety of our history, not trying to abandon her time as as a member of our armed forces, as as a super spy, as as a person who works at a Taco Bell and is trying to get uh, uh, money out of a deadbeat dad. I love when Wonder Woman. More so than most any other superhero, I love it when she comes down to a human level, despite where she's been, the fantastic circumstances under which she came into being, that she's somebody who will really just decide, hey, this person needs my help, and this isn't too small of a problem for a big-shot hero like me, and she'll just get in there and try to help folks. She's such a humanistic character. That's part of what I love about her, and I love that she will take that time and be a part of people's lives and try to enrich in an individual life and not just see the, the bigger picture, the greater good. She's here for everybody. And that's part of what I love about the character and part of what I like to explore on the podcast. All right. Sounds great. So, all right, Frank, before we sign off, I do need to ask you the questions that I ask uh, anybody that's familiar with the treasuries just kind of grew up with them a little. Uh, the two questions, which are, of course, the first one is outside of Wonder Woman, because that's the obvious one. Is there any treasury you think DC or Marvel during the 70s and 80s when the treasuries were, were, were going as a, as a thing they should have done that they never did? And then the second question is, you know, forgetting about any commercial concerns or any sort of worrying about you know, whether it could realist, realistically be done, what treasury edition would you personally just like to see? Well, it wouldn't be me if I didn't demand liberties, if I didn't demand a deferral. This is a Wonder Woman episode, so gosh darn it, we're going to get a Wonder Woman treasury out of me. <laughs> Here's what I want, because so many other characters got this, especially characters that had already jumped into other media. Wonder Woman had her TV show at this point in time. I want my uh, Marvel DC crossover treasury edition, Wonder Woman and Captain America. Uh, I would like it to be set during World War II. I would like it to open up with uh, Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos and Sergeant Rock and Easy Company storming a, a castle held by Baron Zemo and the Red Panzer, in which they capture the sword of uh, the sorry the, the spear of destiny, and it could make the difference between winning or losing the war. And so the Red Skull and Baroness von Gunther kidnap Steve Trevor and Peggy Carter to try to force Captain America and Wonder Woman to get the Spear of Destiny back for them. And I want the whole thing in with a raid on a, a, a castle, uh, again, this time involving Captain Wonder Woman, but also the invaders and the Justice Society of America versus Captain Nazi, Baron Blitzkrieg, basically just go all in on the World War II era characters. And I'm thinking Roy Thomas and John Romita. Wow. You really put some thought by that. Who wouldn't buy that book? That sounds like a winner. Yes. I mean, if we're going to... Uh, I want that. One woman just doesn't get that. She never gets to crossover. She never gets to go and visit other people at their publishing companies. So it's not enough for me to get a solo one woman treasury. I want to go as big with it as possible. That's, oh, yeah. That'd totally be worth two bucks. That sounds fantastic. God, what is that in adjusted dollars? About 75? <laughs> Something like that. So, okay. So, uh, well, what's the other one then? What's, I mean, like, what, what would you like to see them do today? Honestly, I get. You know, I put everything into that first one. So okay, all right, fair enough, fair enough, fair enough, okay. I was already doing an overreach by getting Wonder Woman in, which is usually disallowed. 
Uh, so I figured I didn't, I didn't want to reach too much further than that. Okay. Fair enough. That's, I, I appreciate it. So that, that's, that's a, that, that story just sounds terrific. Uh, <laughs> like I, you know, they, at the end of the giant castle, I could just picture all of like a dirty dozen type thing at the end. It is kind of amazing that Wonder Woman kept in America have really never interacted considering, consider they have oh, so I, much I, of a kind of similar milieu. Yes. Yes. Very much so. Uh, and, it's an exquisite torture to go to, to Ross's uh, Super Family team-up site and see this whole series of stories he's uh, uh, created covers for involving the, the, the long-term loving relationship between Steve Trevor and Diana Prince. Uh, I, I, I want to read that comic so badly, and that's never going to happen. Well, maybe someday. You never know. Hey, I'd rather have the fantasy and all the images that Ross conjures my mind than nothing at all. Good point. Good point. So thank you so much for doing the show, man. I really appreciate it. I wanted to do a nice big Wonder Woman episode, and you're one of the biggest Wonder Woman fans I know from a long time back. So thank you so much for being here. Well, I, I can't compete with the other guests. I just hope I didn't drag things down too much. Um, and hey, everybody go see Wonder Woman if you haven't already. It should be awesome. It, it, we, and damn it, she just deserves you to show up for it. Absolutely. So, all right, everybody, stay tuned, and uh, we're going to play some more podcast promos, and then we'll be right back. Hi, Wonder Woman. I thought I heard you jet. I hear you're trying to come up with a fun class project. Yeah, got any ideas? A dandy one. I'll show you how to make what I call a spinning pencil top. Sounds great. What materials do we need? An empty coffee can, some cardboard, some colored marking pens, and a small pencil. Now, trace a circle on the cardboard, and in a few minutes, I'll show you how to complete your spinning pencil top. I'm Diablo Frank, and I've been a fan of the Amazing Amazon for my entire life. To be truthful, I'm not a typical fan of the Paradise Island set. I'm not big on mythology, and I'm highly critical of the most popular Themyscirian stories. I like it when Wonder Woman loses her powers and hangs out with a tiny blind Asian martial arts master named Ai Ching. Or when she works at Taco Bell and helps collect child support for a co-worker from a deadbeat mafioso dad. Or when she rides around on kangaroo ponies from outer space and is a little too into bondage and spanking for the squares. Wonder Woman is great, but I really miss Diana Prince. The reminder that the heroine feels and fails and bleeds like the rest of us. That's why I call my podcast about her Diana Prince Wonder Woman. Because I like to remember there's a woman behind all that wonder. And I'd like to talk about her if you care to listen on iTunes, Shout Engine, and Internet Archive. back and uh, we have our second special guest for this big wonder woman episode and it's angela from the wonder woman warrior for peace podcast angela welcome to the show thank you so much for having me rob this is really awesome to be here thank you i'm really excited to have you i really like your show it's wonder woman warrior for peace uh, for anyone who is listening to this and doesn't follow angela's show you should do it it's a lot of fun why don't you give people just a brief description of what the show is all about other than wonder woman of course sure uh, I go through, uh, in chronological order, Wonder Woman comics from the Golden Age, pre-crisis, the post-crisis, uh, currently it's George Perez, and the New 52, as well as uh, the TV show, Linda Carter Show, uh, and kind of compare and contrast and talk about the different versions of her history and how that all works out. Yeah, I really like the show a lot. It, it was, you know, as the Wonder Woman movie started to approach... I was like, I want to start listening to some Wonder Woman podcasts. And, like, you know, I was like, oh, okay, there's this one. And so now there's, a, as you mentioned on your own show in the last episode, like, I think when you started Warrior for Peace, yours, there was like one or two other shows. And now there's like seven or eight. <laughs> They've all yeah. fucked up. <laughs> I, I was in the same position as you a few years ago. And I was like, there, there are no Wonder Woman podcasts. There's like one or two that had a few episodes, but it had pod faded. And then so I was just like, I mean, I've got a microphone and I can get comics. <laughs> Why not? 
<laughs> so I started up. Technically, uh, Diablo Frank started his show probably like a year-ish before me, but he had so few episodes that by the time I launched, I was just like, hey, there's no Wonder Woman podcast, so I'm joining in. And then he started up again. Right, so. right, right. <laughs> <laughs> he does things like that. So, uh, yeah, well, well, it's a terrific show. I really enjoy it. I like how you go through the different eras all at the same time. I think that's a lot of fun. Um, like, what is your, just briefly, like, what, how did you come to love Wonder Woman so much? I, when I first got into comics, I was Marvel only. Didn't really read anything DC. And then I happened to call, I, I happened across some, uh, some radio drama type uh, fan fiction podcasts and they ha- they were DC characters and I was kind of interested in, in learning a little more about them so I first I was listening to the Superman one that they had and then they spun off a Batman and Wonder Woman show and they would all cross over uh, like once a year so I would listen to all of them just so I would be following the story and all of a sudden I'm realizing wow I'm really liking this Wonder Woman story even though I knew virtually nothing about the character beforehand so that series, of course, they they uh, they got canceled. They had to take everything down from the internet. There's almost no record of it existing anymore. But then that got me into the comics, which got me into the TV show. And so, yeah, uh, that's that's how I got started with Wonder Woman. Interesting. Okay, so you didn't come to it as a kid. You came along a, a lot no, later. No, this was, this was um, might have been the end of college, but probably even after that. Oh, all right, very cool. So, and now in terms of um, the treasury format, then I imagine you're not you're you didn't grow up with these either, right? This this was no, not something no, you're I familiar didn't. With. Okay, I right. I didn't have a comic store anywhere near me as a kid, so okay. my my resource for comics growing up was the library, okay. <laughs> and like the the Marvel Masterworks and the um, the Essentials bound editions i do remember there was and it wouldn't it was treasury size but it was the alex ross one that he did with um is it it was it superman and batman and wonder woman and shazam and i don't remember who else they did the liberty well they did the solo books and then they did the justice league group book right and i i guess the library had one that was either those individually or all bound into one book I, i don't remember Oh, they did reissue it as a hardcover, yeah. That would be, yep, my library had that one then, and I, I checked that out uh, at least once. Very cool. Well, this is great, because then this is, this is like, when we talked about doing this particular book, which is Superman versus Wonder Woman, like, this is your first pass through this book. Definitely, yep. Oh, that's cool. All right, excellent. I love this, because I had this one as a kid, so this we're coming at this from very different angles, which I really like. So, all right, well, let's get right to it. This The book in question is all-new collector's edition, number C54, it came out on November 29th, 1977. It is Superman versus Wonder Woman. It is by Jerry Conway, who, of course, you're going to hear later on in this episode. Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name. Dane Atkins, Gaspar Saladino, Jerry Serpe, and Joe Orlando. It was $2, and this story takes place between June 10th and June 12th, 1942. Now, this book is broke up into individual uh, chapters, but they're done as reports, uh, like their government files. Before we even get all of that, what do you think of this cover? I love, I love this cover of that. It's the a gloss on the Uncle Sam "I Want You" poster, but in front of it are Superman and Wonder Woman about to tear into each other. Yeah, it's it's really great. Definitely, definitely catches your eye if you're looking on the comic shelf. Yeah, I love uh, the the fury that Wonder Woman has on her like. She looks, I mean, Superman looks really mad, but she looks even madder. And that's, that's just Garcia Lopez. He's just that good at facial expression. It's a really, I love the, the all-white background. It really, it's a very, very memorable image. 
Yeah, her, her fingers are clawed in such a way that I know Kryptonians are bulletproof, but I'd be kind of nervous if I was Clark. <laughs> yeah, it's a terrific, it's a really, really nice image. Just inverting something that we associate from Americana and then, you know, putting the comic book characters in front of them. They've got their classic logos. It's, it's Superman fought a lot of people in the 70s, but Superman versus Wonder Woman is just like an amazing battle. So on the inside cover is a black and white reproduction of the image we see on the front, and it gives us a little brief origins of our two characters, and it mentions the creators, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, and William Moulton Marston, of course. So uh, let's just get right into the story. Report 1, in the Pacific, right after the Battle of Midway, a Navy aircraft carrier is under attack from Japanese pilots. Luckily, the Man of Steel, Superman, is there to help take on the Axis powers. Superman uses his X-ray vision and sees something shocking, that the planes are being flown by robots, not men. Realizing this turns every plane into perfect kamikazes, Superman makes quick work of them. He then overhears communications coming from a Japanese sub, and he breaks into the, sh- the uh, sub's hull, sending water rushing inside. The Man of Steel delivers the sub's captain to a Navy admiral on a nearby island, interrupting a conversation he was having with Lois Lane. Inside, Superman tells the Admiral that the whole attack was meant as a diversion designed to, designed to let the sub slip through American defenses. The sub was transporting a secret agent whose mission was to interrupt the Manhattan Project. Superman is told to come to Washington by the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson. All right, so Angel, what did you think of this opening chapter? I, re- I liked it. Um, I did have to I, – I, I don't know if that was a trope by then in the 70s, but, oh, the Japanese planes are, are – controlled by robots i'm like uh, yeah japan and robots that makes sense <laughs> i love the opening splash of superman flying over the, like this is such a beautiful like widescreen image it's one of the things i love about this format is they some artists really took advantage of the the, the large page size and it's just i love that shot of superman fighting the uh the Japanese heroes. I think it's a really beautiful drawing. Yeah, that is amazing. Oh, I loved I love these soldiers when he goes to go into I don't remember what building, but he's going to go talk to the the secretary guy, and they're like, "Oh, we can't let you in, Superman." And and the guy comes out and says, "No, boys, you can let him go." And and the guy's like, "How on earth were we supposed to stop Superman?" <laughs> that was wonderful. Very, everybody's very uh, yeah they. They, they're respectful of Superman, realizing, well, we don't have much choice, even if we weren't. You know, it's like, what are we going to do with the guy? How are we going to stop? And luckily, uh, Superman's a nice guy. But, yeah, I, I think this is – it's a great opening gambit. You know, the minute you mentioned the Manhattan Project, you know, this is a big deal. Uh, I love uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez's body language for Lois. And when she's standing there talking to the Navy Admiral in her pose and she's trying to get an interview. And then when, when uh, he kind of blows her off for Superman and she's kind of like smarting at him, she's got her arms folded. She's kind of like, Humph. I love all this stuff. This is, this is a beautiful, beautiful uh, series of uh, pages from, from the artist. Definitely. Yeah, it's great stuff. All right, so uh, chapter two, which is a report two. Now we're on to the Wonder Woman side of the story. On the front lawn of the White House, Wonder Woman, on her way to Paradise Island, sees some Nazis trying to kidnap two men out of their car. After a few punches, she notices all of the Nazis are wearing explosives prepared to kill themselves if needed to complete their mission. Wonder Woman throws a car at them, then notices another car peeling out. She follows and watches the men inside board a plane at the Washington airport headed to New York. Switching to her ID as Diana Prince, she trails the men to Grand Central Station, We then, we, where, where she then sees them trying to grab an old man on a train platform. She transforms into Wonder Woman and stops them. She then learns that the man they were trying to grab was Albert Einstein. Back in D.C., Diana's superior, Steve Trevor, says there was no record of these attempted kidnappings. Diana says there were witnesses, but Steve won't back down, driving her to shake her fists in frustration. 
She looks into it herself and discovers that one of the men who almost kidnapped the one of the men who was almost kidnapped in, is involved in the Manhattan Project. Dun dun dun. <laughs> so uh, now we got to like said report two. What did you think of this? It was good. Um, the the bombers at the beginning here, they're all wearing matching uh, bombs, like you said, uh, not not vests exactly, but kind of belts, I guess. But then, did those shirts all come with? with like the the welcome package for suicide bombers from the third reich because they are all matching uh they're all wearing matching black uh sweaters with the big uh swastika on the front and it's they're all identical it's it's, you'd almost think they were clones they they all do look and they all have the shaved heads and yeah the i don't know where you get uh, sweaters with uh, matching uh, magenta swastikas but i guess you can get them at the nazi store wherever that might be uh, yeah, they are your sort of, uh, you know, faceless kind of goons. I love how much Wonder Woman, because, of course, this is the Earth 2 Wonder Woman we're dealing with, so this is right. a little little rougher. She just picks up a car and throws it at these guys. <laughs> I, I was thinking she was almost striking a uh, an Action Comics 1 pose there if they just turned the angle a little bit. That, yeah, the one guy could hold his head like, ah, yeah. I yeah. Mean, I love that she's just a complete ass kicker. I really enjoy that. <laughs> and then later on when she's in the phone booth and she's trying to figure out what's going on and then she storms out of the, uh, the, the, the the phone booth and you see the one kind of army guy just kind of watching like, there's, there's Wonder Woman in the phone booth. I just love his body <laughs> language. She she storms off. I love all that. And I love the opening panel in Grand Central Station. I mean, it's just it's a beautiful setting to show the story and it's I love all the architecture. I mean, I love Grand Central Station anyway as a mm-hmm. building, but I love the way it's drawn here. It's just really it's it's again, it sets the scene beautifully and the uh, the moment where Wonder Woman changes from Diana Prince behind the luggage cart mm-hmm. into Wonder Woman, that feels like it's right out of the TV show. That kind yeah, of all you need great. is a little white, the little, you know, glowing uh, effect of her turning into Wonder Woman. Yeah, just the little spin effect and yeah. I did want to say uh, when she's in Grand Central Station, she mentions that uh, according to the radio show, it's the crossroads of the world. I looked that up. Apparently there was a radio show from the 1930s to the 1950s about Grand Central Station. It was like a drama, really popular. And in their opening intro bit, it said something along the lines of, it's the crossroads for a million people or something along those lines. Oh, so wow. uh, I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. That sounds terrific. Yep. Oh, that's, I dig that. I have to try and find one of those are on YouTube or something. That's uh, uh, yeah, I, that's uh, where I found one. All right, that's oh, I gotta check that out. That sounds great. I love, I love. I'm gonna say this a lot because I think Garcia Lopez is just so good at this. But when Steve Trevor kind of blows Diana Prince off, that last panel where she shake, she her fists are clenched. She looks so pissed off. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I mean, she's just like Steve, and you know, of course, you get the sense that when she's clenching her fist, she could probably. You know, bend a steel bar in, in oh, her yeah, hand. Oh <laughs> You do not want to mess with that woman. No. No, no, no. no. And then it said in the uh, when when she goes into the uh, the the records room. I just like that the uh, we've got slight a slightly Dutch angle, and we just see her silhouette mm-hmm. through the door. It's just you know, again, it's it's Jose Luis Garcia Lopez taking what can be a kind of a dull moment and giving it just a little bit extra visual life. It's just like it's uh, it's a really sharp and I, I like uh, Wonder Woman as detective. You know, this is kind of like yeah. a, a, like a Batman thing. I dig it. Definitely. Yeah, I think it's it's terrific. And again, it's a great way to set up the story in that chapter 1, Superman, chapter 2, Wonder Woman. And now we're going to move on to chapter 3, which is of course report 3, The Baron and the Samurai. Off the coast of Mexico, the masked Nazi known as Baron Blitzkrieg awaits a visitor. The visitor in question is Sumo, a samurai. They head inside where an American scientist they have kidnapped is trying to escape. 
They stop him, and Sumo uses his powers of mental telepathy to find out more about the Manhattan Project. They learn that the nuclear reactor is composed of two parts spread out across the country. They split up with plans to steal each of the parts. So, uh, Angela, were you familiar at all with this character, Baron Blitzkrieg? This is absolutely the first time I've even heard of him. Okay. Um, I just, just reading through his little origin here, I'm getting very much a Doctor Doom meets Magneto vibe, <laughs> but with none of the memorability of either of those two. Because, I mean, he's dressed in like this magenta cape and orange boots and swastikas everywhere. And yeah, no, you, you can't really see this guy working in in a modern comic. <laughs> he was never that. I always kind of like him just because I'm a sucker for 40s set stories. And I mm-hmm. do like his origin, which they, which as you mentioned, they, they, they show here. But uh, yeah, he was, he never quite became that big of a deal really in the end. Mostly because again, he was set in the 40s, but I think there is, his costume is sort of less than imposing. The, the colors really don't uh, send you, you know, running scared because they're just so bright and cheery. Yep. But again, I like the origin. I like the way it's all done in, in the the, serp, the uh, monochromatic in the background. And I like the sumo character where he shows up. And then the big uh, fight where they, they grab the guy that's trying to escape. And there's like the Nazis and the dogs. And it's just the whole big Donnybrook of everything going on. And su- sumo having telepathy powers never I – I always forget that, that he can do that. Because it doesn't seem to match what his skill set is. You know, he's mm-hmm. like, well, he's a sumo guy. Why can't he do telepathy? Well, he just can. So, okay. And of, and of course, any you know team up between these two, you know this is going to go wrong because they're both evil. So oh yeah, you know. But but for now, it's working out. But uh, yeah, so it's good. Yeah, we got it's, you know we got the heroes you know, and we got the villains. So right, yeah, right, I, right. I assume this is Sumo's only appearance, right? No, he actually made a bunch of appearances. Oh, did he? Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, he appeared I, in I Wonder not... Woman comics. Yep. Okay. I, I, I'm reading 40s comics and 80s comics and 2011 comics. I, I haven't gotten to the 70s yet, so. Right, yeah, no, no. I mean, he, again, he was never a huge character, but, but yeah, mm-hmm. he, he's made some, a number of appearances. This was not his first appearance, nor was it his last. So. Okay, yeah. okay, cool. All right, so now we're going to report four, which is confrontation. Diana Prince learns the true meaning of the Manhattan Project and is so horrified, she returns to Paradise Island for guidance. She's convinced that if humanity is ever to use this power, it will spell doom for the world. Back in the offices of the Daily Star, Perry White gets a teletype that says Chicago is under attack, not by Nazis, but by Wonder Woman, which is what? So, dun, dun, dun. Uh, dun, dun, dun. Uh, again, and again, with the scene setting, I love the opening splash here in the in the war base. And we see there's probably about like 30 people. I mean, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez did not cheese out this book. I mean, he put a yeah. lot of work into this. I love this opening situation. I, I got very much a Dr. Strangelove uh, war room vibe from this one. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's terrific. It's really great. Again, the, the, the stuff I've, I've gone on and on about about the treasuries is that they feel like widescreen movies. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're big, big, big stuff. And this is one of those books, again, that takes advantage of that format. And you just get to see these nice big images. You know, I mean, the, the opening set is two pages across. And then when we get to Paradise Island, that's a full page. I love the way he draws Paradise Island. I love the colors. There's like this really brightly colored like parrot type bird sitting on top was all the all the Amazon. I love the concept the Amazons are just always lounging around. There's one <laughs> of them's got a glass of wine, another one's feeding herself some grapes. There's somebody uh, doing horseback riding. Like it just, you know, there was just it's all right. It's chill here on Paradise Island. I mean I mean it is paradise. You're just going to sit around and relax, right? Yeah, good stuff. Uh, and I love again with the body language where she explains to Hippolyta 
about what the what the Manhattan Project is. Mm-hmm. And there's the top panel where she's talking to her mother, and then sort of the mid panel where it's a big close up, and then the bottom is then again in, in a monochromatic where it's just the two figures. And I love Wonder Woman's got her her arms, her fist clenched under her chin. Mm-hmm. She's just so horrified by what the Manhattan Project did. Like even Wonder Woman is shocked that we're messing with this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's really, really nice. I mean, and it sets up a nice, you know, a nice idea that, like, you know, Wonder Woman is horrified at this. You know, she's, like, she's there to protect, she's there to fight for truth and justice. And yet it's like the, the people that, you know, ostensibly she's fighting for are doing something that she thinks is catastrophically dangerous. Well, I mean, it is working and on nuclear is. weapons, but yeah. yeah. It's nice um, to see somebody like her shocked, you know. This is true, yes. Did you get the bit here when she blows the fuse to, to put the lights out? What is she doing there? She's almost looks like she's pulling something out of her purse and then aiming it at this fuse box and it blows. What is that? Do you know that? Do do you recognize that tool or something? No, I actually don't. I don't. I always just it, yeah. I don't know what she's got in her. It, she's got. It looks like yeah. You know what? I can't figure out exactly what that is. It, it almost looks like a little compact mirror, but yeah. I don't know what she would be doing with a little. Blasty ray mirror thing. Yeah, because yeah. you, you think she could just destroy it herself, like with her hand. She doesn't need to actually have a little device. Yeah, you're right. I don't really know what that is. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. She's got a little doodad from Batman's Utility Bat or something like that. So. Yeah, probably snitched off yeah. Bruce at some point. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, report five is called Showdown. Uh, Superman arrives in Chicago to see Wonder Woman smashing open a building using a nearby lamppost. She swats the Man of Steel away, enraging him, and they start an all-out fight. Wonder Woman explains why she's doing this, but Superman won't listen. When the building they are fighting in collapses, they pause the fight. Superman agrees that their viewpoints are diametrically opposed, so he offers trial by combat. Wonder Woman agrees. They take their fight somewhere where no innocents will be harmed. The moon! <laughs> while, they, while they fight, Baron Blitzkrieg and Sumo execute their mission, breaking into a Los Alamos research compound. Again, with the opening gambit, uh, this opening two-double-page p- splash of Wonder Woman cracking into the building, that is an amazing image. Oh, yeah. That is uh, – hold on, sorry. Let me flip back a page. Yeah, the, the giant croom going out of the – the uh, croom sound effects coming from the building and people running. And I do like that they mentioned every time that they were destroying buildings. Oh, it's a good pl- thing. This place is abandoned. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of abandoned buildings in the DC universe. Okay. Now see, hold on just one moment here. The clipping here, um, top left on that page, right. it says daily planet, but you said daily star, uh, with the last section, which, which paper are they at? This, uh, at this I, you point? know what, now that you've noticed, that's actually, that's a mistake. I never even noticed that before because this is Earth 2. Earth 2 is the Daily Star, not the Daily Planet. So that's a mistake. That little clipping should say Daily Star. Okay, because, I mean, I, I, when I read that in your summary, I looked at the page number 20, uh, 32. That's a big globe on top. Did the Daily Star have a globe? I believe that it did. Oh, okay. I believe that it did. Uh, me, not knowing too much about, about the old Earth 2, I, I would have assumed Daily Planet because... I mean, it, it, it's a big globe with a ring around the outside like you see with the planet. But, okay, if that's the supposed to be the star. I will, uh, have, to, I will have to dig through this a little more because – but, I mean, like – okay, I'll say this. I'll, I'll really nerd out here and say if this is referred to as the Daily Star throughout, 
this is a mistake because the daily, okay. I mean, the daily planet, because it was Earth 2 is the daily star. That's how it's supposed to be. So if it's called the daily planet at any point, mm-hmm. that's right. Other than that one old notation, uh, it's actually wrong. But it's, okay. it's supposed to be the daily star. But yeah, you're right. I never even thought about that. That's uh, it's funny because the, 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 it was originally called the daily star on the Superman radio show. Oh, okay. And that's how they, that's where they took it from. And then eventually, uh, over time, they morphed it to the Daily Planet. And then later on, when DC had to establish that there was a Superman on a different Earth, they retroactively said, oh, okay, well, the Earth 2 Superman is Daily Star. Earth 1 Superman is, Earth, is Daily Planet. So, Okay, uh, cool. Um, how, what do you think of the fight between Superman and Wonder Woman? I love that she just smacks him with the lamp. <laughs> oh, yeah. She does not have any time for his nonsense. She's just getting it done. And then he gets, I like the Superman gets really pissed off. He gets, he's like, even if she is a woman, no one treats me that way. <laughs> yeah, not, not really used to seeing Superman getting quite that angry outside of a Zack Snyder movie. So that was pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. And he said their, their fight is great. She flips him over. I mean, it's, it's one of those classic, you know, they're probably in terms of their superpowers, probably pretty equal, but mm-hmm. then you figure, well, Superman's got a little bit of a, of a, advantage just because he's bigger and he's he's you know he's heavier he's he's weighs more but then she's using her more probably she's probably a little more limber and she's using her i guess judo techniques or something because she flips him over and just tosses him out a window which is great yeah well well keep in mind if superman loses his powers he's an ordinary he's an ordinary guy if wonder woman loses her strength she still has decades of warrior training that's true. From from a thousand year old uh, warrior culture, so I I yeah she she could have the advantage at any point in this fight. That's interesting. I never thought about that, but yeah, you're right. Now, what do you think about the idea that like they're going to agree to trial by combat? Like, I feel like that's a yeah, worst. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking, oh well, there's only one way to finish this: sit down and talk about it like reasonable people. No, fight on the moon. <laughs> Because comics. Because comics, absolutely. I mean, it's like, why not go to the moon? Sure, what the hell, you know? Uh, I mean, and that gets in the whole Superman versus Wonder Woman. I mean, that, that's what, what, you're, what right. you paid your $2 for. True. And it, it features an amazing single page, which is on page 44, where she uses both, she clenches both her fists together and just clocks in one. And Superman oh, yeah. comes tearing towards the camera and his hair gets mussed. It's probably the image of the whole book because it's, it just really presents the, the sheer power that she is putting in, into these punches. Mm-hmm. Can, can I just say they discovered an ancient moon culture and don't even like bat an eyelash. Yeah. There's, there's this whole ancient ruined civilization that they found on, I guess, presumably the far – oh, here we go – in the ruins of Taicho, Tycho Crater. And, and they're like, no, we don't care. We're going to beat each other up here. Really? How much how much archaeology and, and research needs to be done there? But no, we're just going to tear pillars down and whack each other with them. It takes a lot to, to, to get your attention in the DC universe. You have a lot of time for these <laughs> things. Oh, look, there's a, oh, look, the Inhumans are living here. Oh, well, it's fine. we got to fight. So it's, it's okay. So, so uh, all right, then report six is conflagration. The army is trying to contact Superman, but they can't locate him. They turn to Morse code, turning off all the lights on the coast of the country and back on again in a pattern to send a message. Our heroes stop fighting and head back to America, where Secretary Stimson tells them what has happened. Wonder Woman still states her opposition to the project, but agrees that the first concern is getting the components out of the hands of the Nazis. They split up, and Wonder Woman faces down some Japanese zeros in her invisible jet. 
Wonder Woman tracks down uh, Sumo, and they battle as the Superman and Baron Blitzkrieg. Wonder Woman uses Sumo's massive bulk against him, and Superman overloads Blitzkrieg's pain centers by hitting him with a super-fast series of small blows. Superman then learns that Blitzkrieg's assistant, Zwerg, is actually a member of the OSS Undercover. Superman and Wonder Woman reunite on a remote island, bringing along their defeated foes. Unfortunately, Baron Blitzkrieg was only pretending to be unconscious, and when he sees the two nuclear components, he uses his mental energy to connect them, causing a countdown to begin. Sumo is horrified that he has failed, and attacks Blitzkrieg, saying if he cannot bring the weapon to his emperor, then no one can. Superman and Wonder Woman tell their foes that the components will detonate, but they don't believe them. Superman and Wonder Woman escape just in time to watch a mushroom cloud form over the island, destroying everything for miles, including, presumably, Baron Blitzkrieg and Sumo. The morning after, Superman and Wonder Woman meet with President Roosevelt. Superman asks FDR that he promised that the U.S. will never use a nuclear bomb in war, a promise that FDR makes. Superman asks Wonder Woman if she is satisfied, and she says yes and no. She believes the president, but says now that Pandora's box has been opened, it can never be closed till the very end of time. So uh, that is the big wrap-up. What did you think of how this, this whole thing uh, ended up? It, it was a... Good old-fashioned, rip-roaring comic book time. Uh, very, very much a good um, classic classic comic story. I loved it. That's good. All right. I mean, yeah, I, I like how Wonder Woman and Sumo square off. I like we kind of get his origin a little. I mean, she's, she's there's kind of like a respect for warriors kind mm-hmm. of thing. Definitely. Uh, there's none of that between Superman and Baron Blitzkrieg. They just beat the crap out of each other. Right. Uh, and I like the idea that uh, Baron Blitzkrieg's his pain centers get overloaded by Superman just just punching him a million times like that I really hurt. I like Sumo dropping a, a rock on Wonder Woman and she just cuts it open with her like a karate chop with her bracelet. I think that's a that's a great bit. The fight is really done really well done. Again, she uses her her karate training or judo training to take him out. I like that the 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 idea that the OSS is involved. I think that Superman's kind of dumb though for bringing Blind Bruce Krieg along for no particular reason. Yeah. Reason. Yeah. Kind of a Kind of wasn't wasn't really thinking there. Yeah. And then the bit here where the he, he Blitzkrieg like put puts the bomb together telepathically or something, and then they have Superman look at the thing with his X-ray vision, and somehow that activates it, and now it's going to be a bomb. And Wonder Woman's like, "Oh wait, I studied atomics on Paradise Island. Now you've tr- activated the bomb. We've got to get out of here." Yeah. It's just, just like, um. Okay, I'm going to go with it, because right. comics. Hey, because comics. Yeah, I left that part out just because I felt bad for Superman that he accidentally did Oh, yeah. It. I was like, good job, Superman. You actually set off a nuclear bomb. And, you know, I like the, the, the bottom panel on page 69 where Sumo and Blitzkrieg are fighting, and mm-hmm. they won't listen to Superman and Wonder Woman. And Sumo says, tricks, deceit, I will never leave without the weapon. I love how close up they are. Like they're, they've literally got each other's throat in each other's throats. Yeah. And Sumo, Sumo is just kind of like screaming off to like, he's looking off to the side as he's trying to fight for his own life while yelling at Superman woman. Like, I think that's a great moment. Again, like so much of this is done in, in the facial expressions and, and mm-hmm. Jose Luis Garcia was so good at it. And then of course you get the big double page spread of the bomb going off and you get the full horror of the explosion, and even mm-hmm. Superman and Woman are rocked to the side a little bit by the by the massive yeah. explosion. It's a really beautiful image. I mean, it's horrible, but it's beautiful. Right, right. It, it it's a striking image. Striking. There you go. It's a much better term for it. Yeah. Um, my only complaint, I think, at this story at all, would be that it wraps up almost a little too quickly. 
Uh, I mean, because we go right from the nuclear bomb going off to just the final page where there would have to And this has a lot of dialogue and I could see that you don't want to drag it out too long, but I, I'm a huge fan of FDR. Like I'm a, I've read so many books on him and I'm just, I, I admire him tremendously and I'm just sort of amazed. Like, you know, like I, I want to spend more time with FDR in a comic book. Every time any heroes were with FDR, I'm like, Oh, I want to see more of this. I like the idea of Superman and Wonder Woman being in his office. Yeah. And, that was cool. Uh, but I mean, it's and it, you know, it's got kind of a mournful end, you know, that it, cause we all know, of course. Yeah, we do him, him saying here, I promise as long as I'm president, America will never use the bomb to kill. I'm just like, Oh yeah, yeah. That, that didn't work out. Yeah. And so, and when, you know, of course, Wonder Woman is, is right that it's, you know, the, once the box has been open, it can never be closed. And even again, with the body language of Superman with his hands on his hips and his head down a little, like he's just mm-hmm. kind of like, Oh, they kind of know what, this horrible thing has happened. So uh, I really love this comic. I bought it as a kid. Uh, I mean, I was attracted. Anytime Superman's fighting somebody, it was like, that's just a big Titanic battle. And, yeah. you know, it's fun to watch, you know, him and Wonder Woman go at it because it's, there's so few people that are his equal. Uh, so it's great. And then, of course, you get them to team up. So you said you, you really like this comic? Yeah, it, it was. I, I like I said, my when I first started out with comics, it was um, it was trades, and it was mostly from like Silver Age Marvel. So this is very much going back to my roots for comics. This style of storytelling. Cool. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. You know, that's great. And it said it ends with the back cover. Uh, which features Superman, <laughs> another great, another great fight where Wonder Woman has got literally like her fingers in Superman's mouth as she's shoving his head back up against the poster, the uh, "I Want You" poster, and in the background we see the Capitol building. It's just a really great pitched battle, and they're destroying stuff. And there's a big brick about to fall on them. It's just, it, it just, you know, how could you not? If you saw this on the newsstand, how could you not want to spend two bucks to get it? Oh, definitely. Yeah. It's how much was that worth in in? 77. Do, do you have any idea? I'd have to, you know what? I, it was a lot of money when I was a kid. Uh, two bucks yeah. was nothing to sneeze at. I mean, comics okay. were like 40 cents back then. So, you well, know, it's about three yeah. or four times your normal. But I mean, as I've mentioned on the show a bunch of times before, I never pissed up an opportunity to buy a treasury just because it's yeah. my favorite format. And especially at this point where DC was doing all original treasuries. I mean, this was mm-hmm. an original book. So this was, yeah. this was just like, you know, you're never going to get to see anything like this. And it's sort of large scope. And the fact that it was written by Jerry Conway, who was one of the great comic legends of all time and drawn oh, by Garcia Lopez and Dan Atkins. It's just a really fun book. As you mentioned, we, you know, because comics, but it's also got <laughs> some, 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 you know, real life commentary and it's got, yep. real, it's got that real life real, real, verisimilitude where they're meeting real people Einstein, Henry Stimson, FDR so it's to me it's like it's it's got a little bit of everything it's got something that you might learn a little like if you didn't know much about the 40s you'd mm-hmm. learn here but it also gives you Superman and Wonder Woman fighting on the moon yep yeah. absolutely I, I will admit when you invited me on I listened to a few of your back episodes and I was like this guy's got a whole show about just this size of comic. Really? That's such a big deal. But actually going through and reading it, you are absolutely correct. The, the, the giant size of the page and the huge spreads and the splashes, it, it really, it really does make a difference. I'm glad to hear you say that. That's funny because the, the previous guest, uh, Diablo Frank, he is very skeptical of the whole notion of of doing uh, shows devoted to, as he puts it, different size, different paper stocks. But uh, what can I say? This 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 is like my most beloved 
format of comics of all time. I have every single Marvel and DC treasury ever published, and wow. I just I, I grew up with them. They, they're just mm-hmm. all my all time favorite format, and so that's why we're doing the show. So, but I'm I'm really glad you like this. I'm glad that I I got to like introduce this to you, this book, and I'm really glad that you liked it because it's like as a Wonder Woman fan, like I was like, oh, this is you know, it's gonna be so interesting to see what somebody coming to it fresh has to say about it. So I'm I'm mm-hmm. I'm really thrilled that you liked it. Yeah, it, it was great. I'm I'm glad you invited me on the show. All right, very cool. I said, and this is a. Uh, the Earth 2 Wonder Woman is a bit more of a brawler than the Earth 1 mm-hmm. version, which I, I enjoy. I enjoy that. I, I feel like, uh, and maybe I'm probably reading a little too much into it, but it's like you think about the Earth 2 Wonder Woman is pre the Civil Rights era mm-hmm. and, and pre women's lib. So she's probably had to just deal with a lot more garbage. Yeah. Uh, not that the Earth 1 Woman has not, but right. I think the Earth 2 one has probably had to dealt with just a little more. Yeah, probably a tad. Yeah, so she uh, just doesn't have time for this for, for this guy. Everybody's crap. <laughs> yeah, most certainly. All right, so we said that is going to do it for Superman versus Wonder Woman. So, Angela, you know, again, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for agreeing to read this story, and I'm glad you liked it. Uh, I really yeah, thanks enjoy, for having me. I really enjoy your show, and you know, as we are recording this, the Wonder Woman movie. Uh, is not yet out, but by the time everybody hears this, the Wonder Woman movie will be out. So uh, I'm imagine, like, have you got your tickets yet? I, I don't. I, I, yeah, I need to. I need to look into pre-ordering those probably because I'm, I'm hoping to see a midnight showing, but I don't know if it's going to work out. And okay. yeah, I'm, I'm nervous. How are you? Like, uh, what, are you, what's your feelings about it? About the movie itself? Are you just? I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're excited. But. Uh, excited. I, I want to say cautiously optimistic. All the trailers and everything looks good, but, I mean, this is the fourth movie in this series, and the other three entries don't give me a whole lot of hope when I think about them. But I try not to think about them. I try to focus on on the stuff that that they're telling us about this one, and I really like that. So I'm really crossing my fingers and hoping that DC has a hit on its hands. Uh, me too. Me too. I, I mentioned to you off air. I am rooting for this movie more than virtually any other movie I can think of. So yeah, uh, yeah. I, I have tickets for Thursday night. So mm-hmm. we're very, really excited. So, so okay. Where can people find your show on the internet? Well, you can find me on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Uh, my, the podcast website is Wonder Woman Warrior for Peace. WordPress. Com. Uh, I'm on Facebook, YouTube, Tumblr, and Instagram as Wonder Woman Warrior for Peace, and Pinterest and Twitter as Wonder Woman WFP. All right, very cool. Like I said, everybody, go listen to the show. It's a lot of fun. I really enjoy it, and it's it's great if you want to sort of doing doing deep dives into Wonder Woman because this should be the year of Wonder Woman. So uh, go listen to Angela's show. I think it's terrific. And stay tuned for some more podcast promos. And when we come back, we're going to talk to the writer of Superman vs. Wonder Woman, the one, the only, Jerry Conway. Stay tuned. As a bullet seeks its target, shining rails in every part of our great country are aimed at Grand Central Station, part of the nation's greatest city. Drawn by the magnetic force of the fantastic metropolis, day and night, great trains rush toward the Hudson River, sweep down its eastern bank for 140 miles, Flash briefly by the long red row of tenement houses south of 125th Street. Dive with a roar into the two-and-one-half-mile tunnel which burrows beneath the glitter and swank of Park Avenue. And then... Grand Central Station. Crossroads of a million private lives. Gigantic stage on which are played a thousand dramas daily.
Now we'll finish that spinning pencil top. That's it, you've cut out a cardboard disc. Now make any design on it you'd like, using crayons or felt tip markers. How's that? Fine. Now take a short lead pencil and push it through the very center of the disc. Okay, give it a spin. Neat! Hate when you spin it on a piece of paper and mix designs. That's a pencil top. <laughs> Fun! Thanks, Wonder Woman. And we're back, and for the final segment, uh, we have a very, very special guest, uh, the writer of the Superman vs. Wonder Woman Treasury Edition and a billion other comics, the great Jerry Conway. Jerry, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm happy to be here. Very exciting to talk to you. I, was, I, I, I love the Superman vs. Wonder Woman Treasury in the previous segment. Uh, Angela and I waxed poetic about it, about how much I loved it ever since I bought it off the stands in 1978, and she loved it coming to it uh, as an adult. It's a really fun story, so I'm really excited to be able to talk to you a little bit about the creation of it. Uh, like how, sure. did, how did this project come about? Like, Did DC say to you, you know, hey, we want to do a Superman treasury or, or what? Well, they had had some success, obviously, with the Superman versus uh, Spider-Man book and then uh, the Superman versus Muhammad Ali book. And the treasury format was a, uh, a format that they, they were doing a number of projects in, uh, as was Marvel. And the idea of doing a Superman team-up seemed like a natural because that was their most popular character. You know, the movies were still coming out at that time. And Batman hadn't taken off in the way that uh, he did in the 80s. Right. So it was, uh, it, it seemed like a natural. And I think also at that time, there was a, a Wonder Woman TV sh uh, series. Right. Uh, and the tie-in uh, was serendipitous. So were you there from the beginning, or did they sort of come to you and say, you know, we'd like you oh, to Oh, from the beginning, okay. yeah. Okay, okay. Well, I mean, I was I was there from the beginning in, in that uh, I, I was either – already writing the Wonder Woman uh, series or was uh, going to be writing the Wonder Woman series. <clears throat> and I'd always been a big Wonder Woman fan, so when the, we were talking about various projects to do, uh, uh, that came up as, as a potential, and I jumped on it. How did the idea to, to place it in World War II come about? I mean, I know the comic book was taking place in World War II, and, uh, but, I mean, was, was there ever any idea that it would be the modern versions of the characters, or was it always World no. War II from the beginning? Yeah, I think it was always World War II from the beginning. I mean, certainly that was my, all I wanted to do. I, I really liked uh, seeing her in World War II. You know, she's, she's a timeless character. Uh, the, the, there's also this element of you could, you could say things about current social mores and, and, and political uh, ideas by setting them back in the past that would make them more acceptable or more interesting, you know. So I, I just liked that uh, venue, that time frame, as a, as a place to tell us that particular story. Makes sense. Now, was the, in terms of the art, uh, I mean, you've got Jose uh, Luis Garcia Lopez. I mean, I, I like to say I think he is probably the greatest artist almost ever to do comics in terms of the consistency of his work. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Was, was he, was he always planned to draw it from the beginning or did he come in later in the process? I'm not really sure wh when he came in, but, uh, he, I think I, by that point I had done some stories with Jose on, uh, with Superman, uh, and any opportunity you could get to get Jose to do something was, was a, a plus. He, because of the way that he worked, he, was not someone that you could uh, uh, really put on a, a monthly title, although we did ultimately do a book together, Atari Force, that was a monthly. Uh, but it was Jose's 
pace was uh, slow and deliberate. And as a result, you couldn't keep him on a, a regular monthly title. So he was always coming in doing one-shots uh, for various uh, uh, books. And this seemed like a, a terrific opportunity to, to get him into a format that would really show his art off uh, to uh, the, the best possible degree. Yeah, I mean, related to that, there are, there are moments uh, in this script where it seems that there are, there are, there are bits that, that seem almost expressly written for his style. Like there's the scene of uh, where Wonder Woman's in the phone booth and she's talking uh-huh. and then the, she storms out of the phone booth and you've got the, the service man just kind of like giving a quizzical look or when Steve Trevor blows Diana Prince off and she is clenching her fists in frustration. They, they seem yeah. almost built for his artwork. I mean, was that, was that intentional? Yeah. or that, yeah. Okay. Oh, absolutely. I, mean, I, well, I always try to play to my artist's strengths and once I know what their strengths are, you know, I, I try to write bits and uh, character shtick that, that they, they are particularly good with. Uh, and and his performance techniques as an artist, when I, his his character performance techniques were were so uh, so well developed and so terrific. I mean, you know, just want to you just want to write stuff like that. I mean, he, he's he's one of those those triple threat artists who's an incredible draftsman, a, a terrific storyteller, uh, and a dynamic uh, uh, designer of, of spectacular layouts. So you you know you just. On every level, you know, you just you just want to work with him and 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 write to uh, write to him. Yeah, I agree with all that. I mean, I think there's a reason why his stock art is still being used by DC. You know, oh, sure. 35 years after he did it, they're still still yeah. using his stuff. Um, now, this story in particular, I mean, it's very steeped in the era. With you've got Superman and Wonder Woman mingling with Henry mm-hmm. Stimson and FDR and Einstein. Mm-hmm. Now, was this uh, this require a lot of research for you, or were you kind of well, already familiar with all this stuff? I, I'm a history buff, uh, and I was uh, at various times I've, I've steeped myself in different eras of American history, particularly American history, and I was uh, very interested in doing a story that would tie into the history of, of World War II, and specifically around the idea of, of the use of the atomic bomb and the the counterfactual. Uh, premise of, you know, would FDR have used the bomb uh, the way that Truman did? And uh, how would our, if, if there were superheroes actually in the world, how would they have reacted to that situation? So it was an opportunity, you know, to, to play around with all of that. Yeah, I love Wonder Woman's sense of worry when she learns about it. I and mean, she goes to visit uh, Hippolyta on the island, and just and mm-hmm. again the way Jose drew it, where she there's a moment where her, like her fists are clenched under her chin because she's just so racked with worry that uh, as, as as she puts it, the Pandora's box is going to be opened, and once it's open, yeah. it can never be closed again. It's, it's, it's an amazing, amazing moment. Uh, now, this book, of course, was published in 1978. It's just a few years after Watergate, which is for those of you listening who are too young to remember, that's when public trust in government was then at an all-time low. Uh, yet you've got Superman intrinsically trusting America to do the right thing. Uh, mm-hmm. He sort of, you know, he, he, he's in. He, he buys in. Now, was this, in your, on your part, like a comment on Superman's personality, or were you well, trying to I draw a contrast? Was, well, I think that was really true of, the, of both Superman as a character throughout his, his history. He always tends to believe that America uh, is... Uh, fundamentally decent and will fundamentally do the right thing. But it was particularly true back in the 40s when the, the Superman 
of the 1940s was very much a symbol of America. Uh, just like Captain America, you know, at Marvel was a symbol of, uh, or timely, uh, rather, uh, was a symbol of America. Superman, when I was growing up in the 50s, you know, we had the uh, George Reeves uh, version of Superman, and every episode opened with that famous opening uh, monologue, you know, right. about truth, uh, justice, truth yeah. justice, and the American way. You know, that was very much uh, what he represented. And Wonder Woman, the fascinating thing for me, the opportunity that we had by pitting him and Wonder Woman at, at odds with each other, uh, she has, uh, the while she's obviously flag-draped as well, she is, on the other hand, a more of a booster of humanity as such, you know, the entire human race, not just, uh, not just America. So you have, you know, Superman defending his adopted country uh, and its belief structure as someone who was raised to believe that America could do no wrong. And you have Wonder Woman, you know, who's a bit, uh, who, who as an Amazon is more skeptical of uh, mankind's uh, inherent uh, Judgment, and at the uh, and at the same time sees herself as a protector of humanity in general. All right, yeah. I mean, I so I love that dichotomy of the two, and I like this, the final panel again with the body language of even Superman seems a little, you know, sort of worried, deflated. He, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. got his hands on his hips, and he's just kind of like, oh, okay, yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's a it's a great ending, and I I think it's a really superb comic. I mean, when you when the final product was all done. I mean, how, what, were you, what was your reaction to it? What did you think of how oh, it I loved out? it. I think it was one of the best things that we did uh, in that particular uh, late 70s era. You know, that, that and uh, I, also, I also really liked the Superman Shazam book that we did, that Rich Buckler and I did. And, you know, Rich, of course, just having passed away, that my, my thoughts are about that. But, you know, it's uh, uh, that particular book, the Superman Wonder Woman book, I think, was easily tied with the Superman uh, Spider-Man book as the best of the Treasury editions, in my view. I agree with that. So Superman really was uh, really pissed off in the 70s, He's fighting a lot of people. <laughs> He's scurrying off against a lot of people. Uh, well, you know, it was, it was that ty- type of decade. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, well, so, yeah, I mean, I think this is just a, a really fun book. It's, it's, a, it's as I mentioned in the, the previous segment with Angela, it's, it's got all the slam-bang action you would expect of a big comic book story, a big widescreen superhero adventure, mm-hmm. but yet it's got the social commentary and all the, the history of verosimilitude thrown in there, too, which is, that's the stuff I loved. I mean, I, I loved sure. 40s, and it's from all this kind of learning about all this stuff. So I think, I, I agree, I think the book came out really great. So, Thank you so much for, for coming on to talk about it. I really appreciate you bet. it. You bet. All right. Uh, do, you, do you happen to know whether it's available as an ebook yet, or is it something that uh, they can only kids can only get if they buy one of the uh, crossover reprints? Or you know, like I that? don't know that. I'm gonna have to. I don't believe it is available on Comixology, but I think it has been reprinted somewhere. Okay. I will have to look that up. I don't have to find yeah, out about it. Yeah, because if you that. could point people to where they find it, I think they'd really get a bang out of it. Absolutely. No pun intended. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, thanks, Jerry. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Robert. All right. All right, everybody, stay tuned. We're going to run a couple more promos, and then uh, I'll be right back. It's a bird! It's a plane! It's Superman! Superman with flyaway action. Assembly required. Jor-El, Jen Lozad, and Lex Luthor each sold separately. It's Superman! 
And this is Wonder Woman. You can make her fly with flyaway action. Assembly required. Wonder Woman. You can make her fly. Superman and Wonder Woman, both with a flyaway action pack. All figures sold separately by Mego. Is that another bad girl? It's me and my underoos. You and your underoos. Wonder Woman. Can you tell us who is who? Catwoman. It's Supergirl on the left. No way. Underoos look out of sight. Supergirl. Wearing underoos is fun. You can take it from us. We're the ones. Wonder Woman. Underwear is fun to wear. It's true when it's you and your underoos. You and your And we're back, and I'm just here to wrap up the show. I hope everybody enjoyed this big Wonder Woman special. I really need to thank my guests, which is Diablo Frank from the Diana Prince Wonder Woman podcast, Angela from the Wonder Woman Warrior for Peace podcast, and, of course, the legendary, I didn't want to call him that when I was talking to him directly, Jerry Conway, uh, who wrote uh, Superman vs. Wonder Woman. Such a great job. Uh, before I completely sign off, I do want to answer Jerry's question in the previous segment. Yes, the Superman Wonder Woman treasury has been reprinted. It is available in the Adventures of Superman Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, that's not part of the title, hardcover book, which it was on In Stock Trades, which is, of course, our sponsor on the Fire and Water podcast. Uh, it is currently listed as unavailable. I guess that means they're just out of stock uh, on it at the moment, but you can add it to your wish list. So please go to InStockTrades.com and look up Adventures of Superman, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, hardcover. Uh, the book is 360 pages, features a bunch of other stories by uh, drawn by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, including Superman vs. Wonder Woman, which is actually even the cover to this edition. So if uh, you have a tough time finding the treasury, you can get it in this hardcover, and it's absolutely worth it. This is It's such a fun comic book. Uh, we are going to skip feedback this episode because this, this particular show is bursting at the seams with content. So I'm going to come back for the next episode, and I'll do two episodes worth of feedback. So I hope everybody enjoyed this show. Um, I'm really, really excited about the Wonder Woman movie, as you can probably tell. I want everybody to go and see it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks again to Frank, Angela, and Jerry for coming on the show. You made it extra special. So uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. You can follow the show over on Twitter, which is at Treasury Comics, and you can find all the back episodes of this and all of our other great shows over on our network site, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. So until the next episode, go big or go home. Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman All the world's waiting for you And the power you possess In your satin tights Fighting for your rights And the old red, white, and blue for you and the wonders you can do make a honking dove stop a war with love make a liar tell it true Wonder Woman